0: This podcast may contain graphic and or explicit content that may not be suitable for some listeners, especially kids like me. (laughs) Listener discretion is advised.
1: You're listening to the Real Life Podcast, brought to you by the Thin Blue Line for Women. In this podcast... We open up and talk about real-life issues as they relate to first responders. It's raw, it's real, and it's about time. I'm Tamara, your host. Thanks for joining me. Don't forget, you can listen to the Real Life Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, Overcast pocket casts and on YouTube Thank you for joining us Are you looking for thin blue line gear? It's available on our website at thinbluelineforwomen.com That's thin blue line the number four women.com show your support for law enforcement and get your thin blue line gear today. Just click on shop at thinbluelineforwomen.com. Today, I have the opportunity and great privilege of speaking with Dan Jarvis. He is the founder and president of 220.org and the voice of the Resiliency Radio podcast. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Tamara, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come talk to your audience.
1: Of course, and it's Tamara. Everyone calls Tamara. me Tamara.
0: It's fine. Sorry, Tamara.
1: <laughs> my, my mom put that extra A in there, and it throws everyone off. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> um, so before we dive into a deep conversation, Can you just tell me and the listeners a little bit about your background, including your credentials?
0: Sure. Um, I've worked in law enforcement in the state of Florida for about six and a half years as a deputy sheriff in Central Florida. Um, I spent uh, 12 years active duty United States Army. I had 27 months deployed to the Middle East as a combat infantryman. Spent a little bit of time as a drill sergeant and my academics. um, I graduated from Central Michigan University with a master's in publication a master's of public administration and currently exploring going into a doctorate program but
1: oh wow Are you, that's going to take a lot of your time
0: yeah <laughs> now so, do
1: you want to do that for for fun or is it going to launch a new career like what what is the that for
0: well because of the nonprofit in the nature of what we do cuz we're really diving into education uh, we're actually training processes Considering a doctorate in education and organizational leadership, with the uh, idea of developing curriculum for future trainings, uh, Uh, because yeah, because one of the things that we want to do is create these processes and and kind of simplify it so that the layperson can literally learn it. Because we're getting more and more involved in peer support groups with uh, law enforcement, fire departments, uh, national guards, military, things like that. So yeah, that's that's what that.
1: That makes sense. Now, the reason why I have you on my podcast is because um, last week I saw a video of you on Facebook, and it really struck me. It hit home, and um, so I started researching the twenty two zero dot org website, and it's a nonprofit. So, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Like, what, yes, what so- is it and. In-
0: We, I, I started the nonprofit back in 2018. It was after I left the sheriff's office, I, I had retired from that career. Um, and I was really like a fish out of water and I was looking for a purpose and looking for a mission. And, and that, that was during the time that I, I went to the VA for counseling for the stuff that, you know, I'd experienced in combat and, and just kind of ended up going down a rabbit hole, looking for solutions for my own, um, my own trauma I was diagnosed in 2017 with PTSD by the VA and I just felt like I was really, really struggling uh, to, to kind of reconnect to my purpose. And so we created the nonprofit uh, to, to stand in the gap, you know, because I kind of fell through the VA cracks and I realized that if I'm falling through the cracks, there's a lot of people in that situation and was really just looking for some alternative solutions for trauma. Uh, because the the mainstream system just really didn't have anything that was was working, and before you know it, I end up, you know, finding some processes that changed my paradigm and my worldview, and and now we're as a nonprofit, we're we're involved with research, we're involved with treatment, um, and we're just we we're, we're a connecting organization. Uh, we we connect the hero with a process that will allow them to heal, and our battle cry for the nonprofit is healing the hero and that's anybody who puts a uniform on for a purpose bigger than self so that could be active military that could be national guard reserves uh, police fire ems and with the onset of the uh, epidemic with covid-19 we've actually included nurses and emergency medical personnel in that same subcategory and we're just we find it that we're just we're growing exponentially not necessarily in you know financial growth but uh, the ability for us to train our process. Uh, we're really connecting um, a lot of people with help. I think to date as an organization, we're at around 1,095 people just in the last year who've gone through the processes and have come out of the other side and are PTSD free. So that's kind of twenty-two-zero in a nutshell.
1: Now, that's what you just said, going from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic strength, I heard yes. that on one of your podcasts.
0: Yes. So, you know, we always look at PTSD. We always focus on the D at the end of it, the disorder mm-hmm. part.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: and the reality is PTSD is, is I would say, within the next two years, uh, going to be removed from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychology for a Diagnosed Psychological Problem. And it's getting grouped and in, reclassed into a category of neurological because what they're finding is... It's not a psychological problem. It's neurological. The brain literally hijacks um, the brain, it hijacks the process. So, you're, you know, say you're exposed to a traumatic event. It's not the exposure to the event that's the problem, it's the emotions that attach to it. And when those emotions stay attached to the memory, whether you're just seeing an image, whether you're seeing a video, um, that memory will then stay active in your amygdala. And that's the fight or flight mechanism of the brain. That's base. Um, human survival instinct is, is what goes on in the amygdala. So you have easy access to the thoughts, the intrusive thoughts, the flashbacks, the nightmares. And what they're finding is kind of what happens is you're exposed to the event. And if you don't process it appropriately, the light switch stays on. And what these processes are doing relatively quickly is just turning the light switch back off. So they're taking the brain from fight or flight down into what they call parasympathetic or rest and digest. So that's when you're seeing... People going back to normal sleep patterns, you know, uh, I, I did a session with an Air Force vet and she went to sleep that night without any m- aided medication. She was on Ambien for 13 years. She would take wow. Ambien just to sleep. And one, when her light switch got turned off and that amygdala went into parasympathetic, she was able to sleep and recover. And then, her, then the brain can then start recuperating, regenerating, resting, and kind of brings you back to normal. That's kind of where we are.
1: So Okay. So the reason why you created 220.org is because of your story. So can you go ahead and open up? And I know it's going to be hard. It was difficult for me to read it. So I'm sure it might be difficult to tell it again. But can you tell your story?
0: Sure. It's actually a lot easier to tell it now than, than if you would have gotten me two years ago.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah.
0: So in, uh, in 2013, I was still on active duty and I was in a basement apartment in Fairbanks, Alaska, right outside of Fort Wainwright. And I was looking down the barrel of a rifle and I had made the decision that I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I wasn't married. I had no kids dependent upon me and I was just over it. And back up 13 months, I was, I just came back from a, a pretty rough deployment to Afghanistan. Half of my men got medevaced out of country. One of my kids was killed and the survivor's guilt, you know, feeling responsible for Cordo's death. Um, I, I stepped on a pressure plate. I detonated an IED that was about five feet away from me. So um, I was pretty much sleep deprived and kind of a zombie for quite a long time, you know, and right at the end of my deployment, my my mom passed away. So I lost my mom literally three weeks before I was supposed to come home. And that just kind of sent me into a, a tailspin. And when I went to my mom's funeral and, and did all that processing, and I came back to Alaska, I was still sleep deprived. And I ended up finding that, you know, I can go to the liquor store buy a buy a case of beer and and drink till I pass out. That kind of became my my habit. So that, the consequence of habit, and that's you know that's one of the problems when when you deal with trauma if you don't if you don't process it in that REM sleep cycle. That's when the memory stays active in your amygdala. You don't you don't move it from one part of the brain to the other, and so sleep deprivation and self medication are probably the two biggest uh, problems with PTSD. So I was never able to process it. So I'd have the nightmares and night sweats so bad. You know, you're literally doing cardio in your sleep. Um, your cortisol levels are so high. You're you know you you become unhealthy. Um, you know, you just aren't taking care of yourself. I did a lot of self isolation. Um, and then on top of that being in Alaska, you know, eight months out of the year, uh, is dark. So you don't have the daylight, you don't have the vitamin D from the sun. There's just so much going on, you know, and you know, that night I was looking at that rifle. Um, thank God for the kids that lived in the apartment above me. Cause when I heard them running across the ceiling or their floor, it just kind of woke me up and I realized, well, if I pull this trigger, it's going to go right through the floor. I didn't want to hurt a kid. I didn't want to hurt one of their parents. And that night I passed out and I get a call the very next morning. And Ryan was my driver in Afghanistan. One of my riflemen says, Sergeant Jarvis, did you hear about Corey? And I'm like, "Nobody. what's, what's going on? So Corey shot and killed himself last night. Uh, Corey was in the platoon that I had literally a couple months prior after coming back from deployment, uh, I had moved out of. So um, he was a, a, a young, healthy, you know, he was a dad, he was, he was a husband, you know, nobody knew that he was even struggling. And, and that's when I realized, well, shoot, nobody knows that I'm struggling. And, you know, I kind of became known after that point, um, the NCO who would literally, if I saw one of my guys struggling, I'd take him down to mental health just to make him go talk to somebody. And what that did was that took the responsibility away from them from having to ask. And then it was just like, oh, great. Sergeant Jarvis is taking somebody else down to mental health. But I think retrospect, they all appreciated that. Um, but unfortunately, a, in, in a leadership position, I, I wouldn't take my own advice. You know, I, I was at a point where I was like, well, do I ask for help? No, I don't want to ask for help. If I ask for help, my commander is going to make me move back on base into the barracks. All my guns are going to have to go into the arms room. It's just going to be uh, humiliating. Yeah. You know, I didn't, want, I didn't want my men to not respect me. So, I mean... Th- the decision to end my own life was like, it made more sense to me than asking for help. And I always say, you know, Corey saved my life. Unfortunately, it was when he took his own. So I've just kind of been on this mission and anybody that's in the veteran population understands veteran suicide. You know, the average numbers, uh, 20, about 22 a day, uh, depending upon what study you admitted the is at 20. And then they came brought it down to 16. It doesn't really matter two two a day is too many. So, the unit that I deployed to Afghanistan with, we lost two men in combat and we've lost five since coming home to suicide. So we're, we're looking at 5% of our manpower. We've lost to suicide after returning home because there's no solutions for PTSD. And, you know, PTSD is not the only reason people kill themselves, but when you're looking at veterans, that's typically the, um, the greatest, uh, factor for suicide is, you know, you, when you get so unhealthy and and the you know you know if you're dealing with survivor's guilt and 24 hours a day that that thought is bombarding your your mind, it just can be very overwhelming. And then finally, guys are kind of getting fed up with it. Um, I didn't want to die. I was just so over being miserable 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, you working in your profession, you know, I, I would I would equate it to you know, you've, you've had your own set of near death experiences. I'm sure anybody that's, that's put a uniform on has had some type of an experience and the average population, they don't understand what PTSD is. And I always tell folks, imagine that moment in your life when you thought you were going to die, how afraid and scared you were. And they're like, Oh yeah, I've had that before. I said, well, now imagine that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's what PTSD is. So if they're really high in that PTSD spectrum, you know, their whole functioning is, you know, I I I scored out a 78 on the score of a 20 to 80 is the PTSD score using the mechanism that we use, which is the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder symptom scale interview uh version five. So 20 to 80 is PTSD, and I was at 78, which meant more than six days a week, I was negatively impacted by PTSD. And then you get the depression that comes all the other comorbid stuff. Um, but now it's like you go through some simple processes and it changes your whole, uh, worldview. Um, I went through a process in September of 2018 and, you know, the, the, the nonprofit was already underway. I was looking for solutions and that's kind of where I found myself in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the trainer was talking about the success rate and I'm like, yeah, 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 okay, sure, whatever you say. And I said, you know, if I'm going to recommend anything to a veteran or a first responder, I want to I wanna go through it. I want to experience it. Mm-hmm. So really cleverly, he was like, this was day two of the training. He's like, you want to do it today? I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? He goes, how about, how about in 10 minutes? I'm like, okay. He goes, how about in front of the class? So Ooh. literally, I'm like, yeah, okay. It was uh, 25 mental health counselors in the class. And I'm like, ah, I was a drill sergeant. I'm not scared of people. Sure, go, let's do it. And I sat up there and literally in 45 minutes, I'm like, what did you do to me? Because you felt the internal shift. You felt the, uh, wow. um, you know, there's a term called subjective unit of distress. So when you think about an event or you talk about an event on a scale of zero to 10, if zero is no negative emotions and 10 is pretty intense, that, that specific event, I was a 10. And then 45 minutes later on the back end of it, the reevaluation, I was like a one and I'm wow. like, how did you do this? And I was able to talk about it. I didn't have any emotions around it. And it was like, this was really weird to me because this is something that had been bothering me, um, since 2011, you know, for seven years, it didn't bother me and I couldn't talk about that kind of stuff. And now I'm talking about it. I'm like, what is this? So that just kind of, you know, opened my paradigm. It changed, changed the way I look at trauma and, so we were looking for better ways to, to treat veterans, better ways to treat first responders. And we ended up developing our own processes as a result. And all of this stuff is based on the works of neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's been around since the 1970s. And ironically, one of the, the founders of the NLP, uh, his name is Grinder, was a an army captain in special forces during the cold war and he was a linguist and that's that's part of the neuro linguistic part so they had some neurologists linguists and they started basically taking some of the best work of some of the most prominent people in psychology it was like Milton Erickson who's really famous for hypnosis and Virginia Satir who's really made a made a big name for herself Mm -hmm. with family therapy and and Fritz pearls. And, and just, uh, they just took the best of all of these people and they modeled their processes and created this NLP. And then, and then I really started digging into it. And I'm like, wow, this is, why is this not everywhere? And then you realize there's no research on it. So what the other organization did was they started doing scientific research to validate the processes. So then we're like, well, shoot, we can develop our own processes and, you know, we've got some some pretty phenomenal people on our board of directors. And one of them is is Dr. Janelle Royster. Uh, she's a licensed mental health counselor and an organizational psychologist. And so we ended up developing a, a process that's it's if if I explain it to you, it's more like um visualization and guided imagery. And you basically coach the person through these visual formats and guide them through the imagery. And then there's a part at the very end where you do a rapid rewind, and and then all of a sudden the amygdala releases the emotion from the memory, and that's when they go parasympathetic. And we did a study, are uh, testing the model for the tactical resiliency process with 100 people. So the study had 30 veterans. We had four active duty military. We had seven police officers, six firefighters. We had four nurses. We had 19 mental health counselors and 30 civilians. So we wanted people from all spectrums to be uh, represented mm-hmm. in the study. And that average score of that group was 54.5 on that 20 to 80 scale. So they were all mm-hmm. in the severe category. And between one and four sessions, the average score was 2.25. Wow. So incredible. We're, we're talking all of them, not not, not a percentage of them, right. 100% of them. Every single one of them that went through the process um, fell below the threshold for PTSD. Um, so then you start, now we're looking at, we have to replicate the results. So now we have two other additional studies. One is with a group of licensed counselors and the other is a group of peer support. So the counselors have already got their data for their hundred and they're going to be, the the numbers are the same. It's a hundred percent. And we're about probably 60% of the way through on the peer support side and the 60% that we've got complete is is at 100%. So if we were to stop it right now with 60 people, it'd be 100% of the 60 people. Wow, but we're trying to get that we're trying to get that 100. And that's kind of one of the problems that we run into is sounds too good to be true. It sounds like <laughs> it, sound, does. it does. It sounds like snake oil. And I'm like I get it. I was in that category and that's why uh-huh. I said I want to go through this. And then right. you know, once your once your paradigm changes and once you look at it differently, now looking at PTS, it's an injury versus an illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what do you do with an injury? You know, you treat it and then the injury itself heals. And that's what we look right. at PTSD is when the brain hijacks your, your thoughts and your emotions, you know, it's, that's kind of when the amygdala is injured, it's stuck, you know, it's, it's stuck in the on position, you know, and, and to be able to turn that to the off position and take it out of fight or flight, and hear the incredible stories of the veterans and first responders who have literally done a 180. I mean, we're we're right. talking a 180 yeah. degree difference. It's it's remarkable.
1: Now there are a couple of therapies. I guess they're called therapies: TRP and EMP. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want you to dive into those more. Tell us what they are. Absolutely. Tell us how. Tell us how you use them, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about 220.org. Um So let's just take a really quick break, and we'll be right back. Thank you. Are you interested in CSI or forensics? The Forensic Science Academy program has been recognized as the premier training program, completely dedicated to students who are launching their forensic career. The Academy offers specialized hands-on training modules in basic and advanced crime scene investigation, forensic photography, fingerprint identification and classification, crime scene management, and corner investigations. Instruction is offered in the form of weekend workshops, online courses, webinars, and seminars. Training at the Academy of Forensic Science will give students the competitive edge employers and agencies are looking for when hiring past graduates are now working as crime scene investigators private investigators forensic pathologists coroner investigators forensic nurses forensic accountants and even criminalists the courses are taught by forensic professionals who are experts in the field and hold membership in the international association for identification and other professional forensic organizations for more information visit ForensicScienceAcademy.org. Again, that's ForensicScienceAcademy.org. All right, we are back from break. And uh, we were talking on break about my addiction to Diet Dr. Pepper and my addiction to McDonald's soda. And I think everyone on Twitter who listens to my podcast already knows that I'm addicted to diet soda. and then you mentioned that you can help me with that. So here I am thinking that your program, if you will, can help people with post-traumatic stress, depression, things like that, but addictions as well. Like, yeah, like, so, so, so I guess just go, just go for it. Talk well, and, and then talk about EMP and TRP the, and all that. Like just get the, into the
0: addictions. Um, the addictions interesting. part of the thing was like, for me, my, uh, <laughs> my, my kryptonite was honey buns. I, I couldn't pass a honey bun at a convenience store. Oh, it almost got to the point where I would get home and my wife would be like, did you have a honey bun? I'm like, how do you know these things? So with, with the wor- world of the neuro linguistic programming, which is the roots of the, the TRP and the EMP, um, there's a, there's a thing called uh-huh. submodalities and it has to do with the way the brain codes everything. So we have a reaction, we eat something, it's sweet, we like it. And there's a neurological connection mm-hmm. to the brain.
1: Well, it's yes. dopamine, it's do- right? Isn't that yeah, really okay? It's,
0: yeah, it's along that spectrum. So so what happens yeah. is you have to find something to substitute that like to dislike. So for me, the the what I used is it's kind of funny because honey buns was like comfort food in Iraq. We had pallets and pallets of it, and whenever we get you know mortared, I'd go out and raid the honey buns afterwards. That was my that was my dopamine. Wow. So you find huh. something that is a similar texture and size and shape that is revolting to you. So what you do is you you make oh, an image gosh. in your mind. You, you make a picture of that honey bun, um, and you you shrink it down to the size of a poster stamp. And then you find something that's revolting. So what I, what I transferred was um, rotten pork chops with maggots on it. Really... Ew, well, oh my gosh, God. I'm telling you. And, and you get to the, you associate into, you think you smell all of that. It's like you get all these reactions and all those emotions are provoked. And the, the gentleman that, that did this technique on me, um, actually had a honey bone and he said, close your eyes and just think about that gross, disgusting, you know, rotten pork chop. And I was, he could just see my, I was making faces. I was like, Oh, about to, you know, about to lose it here. And then he was holding a honey bun right in front of me. He says, now open your eyes. And I open my eyes. And the first thing I see is the honey bun. And I, it revolted me because I immediately connected that feeling and emotion of that revolting thing to the honey bun. And that was March of 2019. And I haven't had one since. I can't. I look at him at the, on the grocery store and it just, I just turn away. It's like, it's just gross. But that's the power of the brain. And that, that'll kind of segue back into what we're doing with the PTSD work so the the trp we call the tactical resiliency process i'm a military guy so i came up with a military name for it Um, and resiliency is kind of what we're focused and that's the ability to bounce back from trauma and we call it tactical because you can deploy it within a short amount of time from the exposure of a traumatic event and trauma is something where the emotion of fear terror and helplessness is what is feel is attached to it so say for example you know you're a police officer and you're involved in a shooting and somebody shoots at you round ricochets near you and the event's over you know maybe you killed the guy maybe he's in custody but the feeling of that the fear of you almost died or you know maybe it's um you know I had a deputy i worked with his sergeant ended up dying in his own arms and he was helpless to do anything with it with him so that his trauma reaction was helplessness so fear terror or helplessness and now if you, don't appro- if you don't process it appropriately, then it, over a period of 31 days, it goes to the category of post-traumatic stress. Before 31 days, it's considered acute stress. So the tactical resiliency process oh. in the work that we're going to do with peer support groups is, say an officer gets involved with a shooting and he's still having a reaction to it three days later, you can run the process and you can neurologically disconnect the emotion from the event before it becomes a problem. So, you know, one, oh,
1: so you don't exact, wait until it becomes a problem. You tackle it before it becomes
0: okay. a preventative measure. And then your what will end up happening is the moment you intervene with the process, your cortisol levels will go back to normal. You won't have those long-term negative effects um, of that stress. Um, and then you're not going to get to the point where you're going to need a, a beer or two to, before you go to bed. You know, you can get back to to kind of healthier living. So, Um, Kind of an explanation on the tactical resiliency process is the first thing we always do is we run a practice movie so that on a neutral event so that the individual can do the proper visualizations because you kind of coach them through the process before you dive into the actual trauma. So, for example, you know, say you brushed your teeth today. You the first thing you did was you put toothpaste on the toothbrush or you turn your wall, whatever your image is, you make a picture in your brain Mm -hmm. of yourself, um, brushing your, or putting the toothpaste on the toothbrush and you drain the color, you turn it into a black and white image. And then the last thing that you do when you're done, um, dry my hands. Okay. And then you make a mental picture of you drying your hands. And then you find out where that person likes to watch all their video content. So say you, say you sit on your couch and you have a big screen on your wall. And you have them go in their mind and you have them sit on the couch and then take the first image of putting the toothpaste on the toothbrush up on the screen in the black and white image. And once, once that's done, then you have them separate from their body, disassociate. So kind of like that, you know, we're coming up on Christmas Carol, like the ghost of Christmas past. So you can see yourself over there. Mm-hmm. So you, you float out of your body and you look back and you see yourself on the couch watching the TV, but you're positioned in a place in the room where you can't see the TV. So you never actually watch the movie. You only watch yourself as the self on the couch watches the movie. So you do this uh, a bunch of times to make sure they're comfortable and they're staying focused on themselves. And then at the end you do a rewind. So you have them go back associated into their body and then in their mind, they'll go into the last picture of drying their hands and they'll run the movie backwards associated from a black and white image at the end to a color image at the beginning. And then once you're comfortable with that process, all you do is change the bookends. Now, you insert the trauma and you have a safe place at the beginning and a safe place afterwards. And what's happening is you're watching the movie subconsciously. So as you watch yourself over there on the couch, you on the couch is watching the whole movie because you're, you're instructing your subconscious brain. You're going to watch from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie all the way to the end, but you're only going to watch yourself on the couch, watch the movie. You don't get to watch the movie. So you have to make sure they don't associate into the movie. But the first thing you need is you got to have a a sympathetic arousal. So before you even start that process, you tell the person, don't tell me anything about the event. I don't want to know what it is you're working on. This is your movie. You get to control everything. And they think about the trauma. And then when you see they have a reaction, we call that a sympathetic arousal, a trigger. That's when the process can begin. Because then you you set up the disassociated movie until they're comfortable and there's techniques that you can do. Like, you know, say, for example, well, how were you on the couch? Well, I was really fidgeting because I knew what was about to happen. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, this is your movie. You get to control it. You got a remote control. Why don't you go ahead and turn the video off and turn the sound off and Mm -hmm. just let the DVD play in the background. That DVD playing in the background is in the subconscious. It's still running the movie. You're just not aware of it. So they'll do that. And now the person that's watching the self on the couch, well, how was it the next time? Oh, it was... It was much better. It was so much better. The, he was calmer. He knew, um, everything was okay. And okay, good. Now you do that a few times until they're comfortable. Or if they're really, really holding on tight, you know, you do something like, I want you to hold your breath, like literally hold your breath. Or, you know, if there's a, if, if the trauma involves something like a, an odor of diesel fuel or something that really triggers, and that's really active in their, and their brain at the moment, you have them think of a pleasant smell, something that they really enjoy. And you'll get them to do things like smell, you know, lavender. I want you to focus on smelling lavender. You like popcorn? Can you taste popcorn? Focus eating popcorn (laughs) or Hey, you know what, what's your favorite song? You know, put the song of the day on, put your earbuds in and focus on that song as you look at yourself over there. Cause you don't need to know what's going on in the movie. And then all of a sudden you got them to a calmer place. They're okay. They're good. They're good watching themselves. They're good on the on the couch. Now you do that rewind, and you have them enter the very last scene, black and white. And what do you think of when you see a black and white movie? Yeah, what do, what do I you think, think about what, what is what is a black? When
1: I see a movie, wow, this is like from exactly. 1900.
0: It's an old movie, right? The brain the brain looks at it the same way, so it, it removes the intensity. It visually removes the intensity from the events, and then you have the bookends, the picture before the trauma and after the trauma. So you're subconsciously telling the brain there's a beginning and there's an end. And it's an old movie. And then when you do the rewind, you rewind from the end of the movie in black and white to the beginning in color. And that's when the amygdala says, timeout, timeout. That's not what this is for. We're actually ending on the positive. And it re- literally will separate the emotion from the memory. So that's when the memory will then go to the cerebellum and the emotion will go to the hippocampus. It's funny because you'll see people yawning they'll start yawning like, like, like they're exhausted. And and I, I just kind of chuckle because I know that's when you got them because that's when they're, they, they just went parasympathetic. Their, their fight or flight, ju- the light switch just turned off. And then you, you do this a couple of times, they feel comfortable. And then you tell them, all right, now what I want you to do is think about what happened. What's different. And they're looking, most of them are like confused or like, wow, that's weird. I'm like, what's weird? I, I can't feel the emotion. I said, well, on a scale of zero to 10, you were a 10 before. Where are you right now? One, two, and then you get them to that, that calmer place. And if you get them to like a three or below, then what you do is at the very end, you do a, a rescript where you have them think about a different uh, outcome, you know, You'll tell them it's not going to change what really happened because that's your history. There's nothing in the details that are going to change, mm-hmm. but we want you to think about a different outcome. And as you think about the different outcome, you feel a different emotional state. Or maybe if they can't think of something, I'll say, "What's your favorite family vacation?" Oh, Disney World, hands down. Do you remember? Do you remember what it felt like to be at Disney World? <laughs> then you get them feeling feeling that that good positive emotion, and that layers over the old memory. So it's got to do with the sub It's kind of like getting the like to dislike. You're changing the feeling associated with a memory. And now when you recall the old event, you have the feeling of the new emotional state. So you don't have that fear, terror and helplessness anymore. It's a positive emotion. So that's, that's the tactical resiliency process. So,
1: and they're not speaking about this out nope. loud, right? This is all yep. within.
0: You only want them to think about it. To have oh, the that trigger,
1: that's it. In their mind. And how many times, how many How many run-throughs does this take for an, an individual? It
0: just depends once. on, like in the study, we had one to four sessions. 40% of the people only needed to do one session. That's all they needed to do. Um,
1: okay, so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go so, ahead. One to four question. sessions,
0: but as far as the, the visual process itself, until they're comfortable, and then until you get the intended outcome you just keep going until that 10 becomes a zero
1: but okay here's an example and i can only think of myself uh I, like all the crime scenes that i saw and i i you know which led me to write my book through my eyes i don't have just one specific right. trauma or scene i have a a plethora of them so what how how would i do that do i just take one that's my worst and then just focus that's on a that one. very
0: perfect. And what we do is we guide the individual at the very beginning. And I always tell everybody, let's get your big one first. Let's go after the one that really, really bothers you the most. So like, say you're scoring out a 78. Okay. What event is it that's causing those nightmares? That's the one you go after. So the, neurologically, okay. what ends up happening is say you're seven. All right. And you're exposed to a trauma. And then you kind of go back to being a normal kid. And then at 11, you're exposed to a trauma. And then you're really starting to show some disciplinary issues. And then you're 20 and you're exposed to a trauma. They're all neurologically connecting. So the 20-year-old trauma is connecting back to that first seven-year-old trauma. The 40-year-old trauma is connecting back to that first seven-year-old trauma. So someone that has complex PTSD, all you got to do is identify and isolate the first and the worst and that typically they call that the gestalt, the string of pearls. You pull one out, and the rest fall away. So um, mm-hmm. if you run a really, really big traumatic event, you clear it. A lot of times, it'll take three or four others with it. So you just got to keep you just got to keep hitting them until they're not there anymore.
1: Now you also mentioned something. You said uh, during their imagery process, you had them focus on like a song that they, they liked or something in one of my scenes at one of my triple homicides uh, we were looking into a crib and my homicide sergeant's phone rang and it was a song and the, the song was titled mm-hmm. good life. And ever since I could not listen the to trigger. that song. So that like, yeah, it was a huge negative impact, but now I force myself to listen to it. So am I, am I, by forcing myself to listen to it, am I in a sense, Doing doing this process, but not no. Kind of
0: as all you the way through,
1: like, am I like what am I doing? When I'm forcing myself to listen, what is
0: force, because the, the, the VA uses a treatment called prolonged exposure, or they call it in vivo, where you're actually mm-hmm. retelling the same story, and the intention is to over time to desensitize you to that you know that event. So so you're trying okay. to desensitize yourself. What the process that we do does is goes below that into the subconscious and disconnects the trigger Mm -hmm. to it. So when I knew, when I knew this process worked, all right. So August for me was a trigger the whole month of August. That's when we lost Doug. That's the survivor's guilt. That's, I knew the day was coming. That was a gut punch when, so like literally the end of uh, September um, or end of uh, July going into August, I was having a hard time already. So the following year after I went through this memory reconsolidation process, August 21st rolls around and I check Facebook and I missed the anniversary of Doug's death. And I'm like, wow, holy cow, that just happened. We're talking for the last seven years, every month of August was literally one of the worst right. months of my life. And so what it yeah. does is it neurologically disconnects the emotion that's attached to that. Wow,
1: that's that's amazing.
0: Now, what's EMP? EMP is we call the emotions management process. And for example, that's a process used to help reframe negative emotions. So people that have like, say, an anger problem or sadness problem to where it's an overwhelming event for them. And what we're able to do is reframe by finding the earliest onset of that emotional state, because what we're dealing with in emotional states is when you trigger them, when they're when they you have the sympathetic arousal and you feel it, the emotional states then become vulnerable to changing. So, what you'll do is you'll identify the very first moment you felt anger. And, majority of people, when we do that, they go back to the first seven years of their life. And that first seven years of, of your life is called the imprint phase of learning. It's kind of like when a duck is born and mm-hmm. attached, the first thing it sees it attaches to it because it imprints to that. Same thing with kids. Kind of like mm-hmm. when that three year old says, dang it, you know, damn it or whatever. And all of a sudden you're like, where'd that come from? Well, came because he heard somebody say it. That's It was imprinted in them. Mm-hmm. So those behaviors become subconscious. And then over time, without something changing or altering the way that they respond to that, that emotion, that becomes their subconscious driver, their habit. So we do is we identify the earliest onset of an emotion and we reframe it. Um, I'll give you an example. I worked with a Vietnam vet in Florida. And we were doing the trauma part because he had PTSD, was in Vietnam in 1969. He had three traumatic events in Vietnam, and then he was medevaced out of country due to injuries. And his best friend died in his arms. So he had such a bad grief reaction when he thought about his friend since 1969. And all we had to do is we had to have... he, He was already sympathetically aroused. He already triggered to it. So we had to disassociate him. So I'm like, all right, Andy, as you're looking down, I want you to float high enough into the air to, to minimize that event so that you're now no longer seeing yourself in the jungle, holding your buddy. You're seeing the tops of the trees. You can't see yourself anymore. And then what that does is it neurologically disconnects the emotion and then you reframe it in that context. So I said, Andy, we're changing the rules here. You're now dying in your best friend's arms. Do you want him to be sad, depressed and miserable for the rest of his life? And Andy was like, no way. I'd want him to go on, be happy, live a productive life. And then I said, so what makes you think he expects anything less out of you? And his eyes got really big. His eyes got big. And he said, I've never thought of that. It never, that never made sense to him. He didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. And that's when he immediately reframed how he looked at it. And he no longer carried the emotion of the grief. So just, just that simple reframe was able to allow him to let the emotion go.
1: I like the
0: reframe
1: stuff. That's interesting.
0: And that's easy. (laughs) That's a process. It takes about five to 10 minutes, depending upon, you know, Mm -hmm. how hard they want to hold on to the feelings. Because a lot of times you have to negotiate with them. I had, I worked with a veteran last weekend and he didn't know what to call his emotion. I said, well, what's it, what's it related to? He says, well, my ex-wife. I said, well, then let's just call it ex-wife. So we reframed his, we just (laughs) called that a group of emotions, ex-wife. We reframed it. And this has been bothering this guy for like 20 years, you know. So we wow. reframed the ex-wife. We he he couldn't feel the anger and all the other hurt and stuff and the emotions anymore. And he's like, Well, I guess I'll find out what this is all about in about four hours because I'm having dinner with her and the family. And then he called, then he calls wow. me the next day. He goes, Man, I don't know what you did with me, but I didn't get mad. I didn't get triggered. I mean, I didn't talk to her, but <laughs> I it didn't bother me because it would have bothered me in the past. It's just right, right. It's all how you look at it
1: yeah yeah, right. Kind of like attitude. Okay, so that so that's what led to the birth of twenty two zero org, right?
0: Well, twenty two zero started okay. and then we on, on our journey to find a better way. These are processes that we've come across. We started developing our own processes. Now we're training. We have eighty five um, people trained in the United States to do these processes. Uh, we connect veterans with veterans. We connect first responders with first responders. Cop to cop, firefighter firefighter, whoever they can connect with, and and change and impact lives. So it's mm-hmm.
1: okay. So what if what if somebody feels that they need this? How, is it done on video? Do they have to be in person with you? Like how how do they do this? How do they-
0: well? Covid's kind of changed everyone's paradigm. So what we've started doing was training the huh. process over Zoom, and I really enjoyed that part because one it 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 minimizes our expenses. We don't have to fly somewhere to put a training on. We can actually host it virtually. And then they learn Mm -hmm. how to do it remotely. I've done FaceTime. I've done Zoom. I've done Skype. I've done, um, I didn't even realize, but there's um, Snapchat, video messenger, any, as long as you can see the person for the trauma work, uh, you can do it because you don't want them going down the the rabbit hole of emotions. That's why you want to see them. Uh, The emotions management you can do on a, on a cell phone conversation. You could do it, I've even done it by text message as long as you can get them to visualize. Uh but the the trauma part, the TRP, you can do it, uh, Zoom, FaceTime, any kind of video platform you can see them, or you can do it in person.
1: Okay. So how do they get a hold of you? Is it just 220.org and then there, is there a
0: contact yeah? If they go to the 220.org, they can just they can just send an email, it'll come directly to me. Um my mobile number is actually on the website. That's the number for the nonprofit, so eight six eight six three two two one six three zero four. So they can contact me directly. And the really cool part is when our community was people that put a uniform on for a purpose bigger than themselves and their families. So we have a really cool price for them. It's zero dollars. So there's no cost associated with the treatment. Wow. So that's that's how we um, that's how we gauge our success you know, with the amount of money that we put out as a nonprofit over the last couple of years. Um with a thousand and ninety-five people, I mean we're like a couple dollars a person is what it's it's coming out to. So we, we're basically re- removing right. the profit uh, from the equation. So you know it's it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that a thousand and ninety-five people that I've yeah. healed. From, yes. from this. And, and there's going to be There's going to be a lot more. We, we just got to bring you more. <laughs> we got to bring you more. Well, that's what this podcast is about. I want people to learn about you. And like I said, I mean, I've been doing this podcast for a year. I've had Thin Blue Line for Women for three years. And I just saw you for the first time last week. So we just got to yeah, get that, this information yeah, out that's there. That's the
0: biggest problem is is belief. We just got to you know? get people to see it and to understand what's going on and to not be afraid of actually asking for help. Because uh-huh. it's really cool when they, when they find out they don't have to tell their story. They're like, I don't have to talk about it. It's totally contrary to what they go through in the modern, modern uh, mental health. That
1: you're, you're right. You're right. You're right. Well, and that's why I asked you during the process, do they have to actually talk about the scene or the trauma nope. out loud? We, because nobody wants to We don't to do want to that. hear it.
0: It's not that we don't, it's not that we yeah, don't care yeah. about their story. It's just that right. when we used to use content, uh, there are some. I don't know how the professionals do that day in and day out, um, but that that vicarious oh, trauma. You know, most most uh-huh. of your therapists yeah. end up in burnout that deal with trauma because they're mm-hmm. having burnout. they're hearing yeah. it over and and a lot of them end up in therapy because of their clients. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who do some yeah. pretty horrible things, and I don't want to hear it. it. Right? No, I absolutely, don't, I don't, I, <laughs> absolutely. I, I know what the human. It, and you don't, and you don't, don't need don't to need hear to. it to
1: heal them. Right. That's, a, that's amazing. Uh, now, can you talk to briefly about resiliency radio podcast? What, what is so that about?
0: Where can resiliency they radio. We initially started it off as the PTSD free podcast, but since we kind of started developing our own processes and dropping content, we're getting more into resiliency work, which is how we've been able to get into okay. like the Florida national guard it's how we're getting into like the Seminole County Sheriff's Office, Salt Lake City Police Department, Suffolk Fire Rescue. You know, the resiliency work is what's getting us in the door because we're teaching the brain a skill um, that they can actually do. Your brain will learn how to do these processes and you'll, you'll end up doing them automatically. Um, but the resiliency radio is on all platforms and it's just capturing stories of people who have gone through our processes uh, because a lot of times we get that. You know, I'll get a, a, a spouse call me and say, can you help my husband? And I said, well, I can. But the first thing is, does your husband want help? Or can you help my wife? I can but does she want help? And a lot of them, it's mm-hmm. like, well, they won't talk about anything. So then I'll send them the link to the podcast and say, let them listen to some of these or let her listen to some of these. Oh, and then okay. they'll come around and like, yeah, they're willing to try it. You know, because I think once once they understand okay. that there's no content, um, that's right. pretty, it's pretty remarkable. So.
1: So the podcast is full of stories Stories. of, of this happening and being, most
0: of them, it shares a little bit of the story of the veteran or the first responder. Uh, We don't get into like details of trauma, but you know, how long they struggled, Mm -hmm. you know, what type of stuff that they were struggling with and then what they're like on the other side, going from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic strength.
1: Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Dan. Amber, thank you. The 220.org is your nonprofit website and Resiliency Radio Podcast is your podcast. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. I hope that anyone out there listening who is struggling with any form of depression, PTSD, anything like that, go ahead and contact Dan Jarvis and you can, again, get a hold of him at 220.org. So again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Because that's, I mean, you're doing a lot of work for a lot of people, but, but, you know, it takes, it takes people like you to help our heroes. So I just want to give you the, you know, the thanks that you deserve. So thank
0: you. Our heroes are worth it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide, you don't have to be alone. You can make a confidential safe call now at this phone number 206-459-3020. Safe call now is a confidential 24 hour crisis referral service for all public safety employees, all emergency services personnel and their families. Again, the number is 206-459-3020. You can also call CopLine at 1-800-267-5463. If you're not a first responder, you can reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. You don't have to be alone. The Real Life Podcast was recorded and is being made available by Anchor.fm and its affiliates solely for the informational and entertainment purposes. The information, statements, Comments, views, and opinions provided and or expressed on the Real Life Podcast are entirely those of the host, guests, and callers, and are responsible for all show content and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the agencies and communities that the guests may serve. Some parts of the Real Life Podcast may contain adult content intended for people who are 18 years of age or older. Please listen responsibly.